when he preaches the gospel and that those listeners will benefit when he preaches the gospel. And so here in our passage today, we're going to learn much more of how Paul does that. So let's go on. We're looking at verse 19 to 23. And then, oh, I've made the text too big. Oh, it's not having Great. Great. Our first lesson is gospel-minded people accommodate themselves for others for the sake of the gospel. Gospel-minded people accommodate themselves to others for the sake of the gospel. Verses 19 to 23. And we're going to break this up into Paul's position, his attitude, and his reason. Let's break it up. It says, Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. See, this opening statement by Paul sets the president in tone for his passage. He's given his position, attitude, and reason. So let's look at his position, first of all. Though I'm free and belong to no one. Paul was reminding the Corinthians of his position again, as he did so in the beginning of chapter 9. He's reminding them that he's an apostle, that his role as someone appointed by Jesus Christ to preach and build the church is one within the church that holds the most authority. He's the most senior um, person within the church. That doesn't mean that Christ is not over Paul, but I'm speaking humanly. So essentially, there's no one under Paul that can tell him what to do. He's free. And then we have his attitude. I have made myself a slave to everyone. Do you see the contrast there? He says, I am free and I have the most senior role. But at the same time, I've made myself a slave. He says, I have brought myself down in humility, in little self-importance, in order to serve the interests and needs of everyone. Not his fellow Jews, not his countrymen, not people that he knows he can get benefits from, but to every single person. But what's the purpose of him being so authoritative in a church? And at the same time, he contrasting that with being a slave. What's the purpose of that? Because it would be outrageous for him to do such a thing. It would be crazy to be a slave to everyone. What's the purpose? There has to be a good reason for that. And we see that in um, the, the last part of this, this section, verse 19. It says, to win as many as possible. To win as many as possible. Paul says he wants to win others. He wants to gain them for the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's always making attempts for Christ to gain people for him. He wants to bring people into the fold of Christ. Of course, we know ultimately that it's God that saves people. It's God that works in man to to preach to the other man to be able to save people. But we also know that how would they hear if there's no one sent to preach to them? And so Paul uses his responsibility, human responsibility, to be able to save as many people. Though he's high, he makes himself a slave to save others. And so we see his attitude and his reason is very formed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, influenced by Christ. And we're going to see in the following verses, 20 and 23, how exactly, practically, he does that, how he chooses to do that as an apostle. And we're going to see how we can learn from that. So let's look at verse 20. To the Jews, 
I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law. Though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. Paul was a Jew by birth, ethnically speaking. And he lived under the Old Testament, which, was a, which involved religious commands and observances that God had given his people through the prophets or the messengers. However, speaking of Paul's former life, he's no longer a Jew in a religious sense. He is a Christian now. He has a new identity in Christ, and he's living under Christ. Yet, he's saying here that he became a Jew in the religious sense. He adopted the Jewish way of life, living freely as one under the same exact law as those. He essentially adopted that lifestyle. He wasn't, he didn't become a Jew in religious sense, still in Christ, but adopting certain things of that lifestyle. But he did it to be blameless to their conscience, that he may win them freely, uh, um, freely acceptable in the sight of Jesus Christ, that they would come to Christ in salvation, be justified by Christ without works. Paul would accommodate himself in areas that didn't deny the gospel of Jesus Christ, but he did so in a way within his gospel of freedoms where he doesn't deny Jesus Christ, but at the same time he's still loving humans to, again, to accommodate himself to them for the sake of the gospel. You see, he, he, sought, he sought to build bridges whereby he wouldn't be alienated from them or that he wouldn't be one man island that couldn't reach other islands who don't know Christ. He chose to build bridges where possible that didn't deny Christ for the sake of the gospel, that he'd be familiar with the Jews. See, the book of Acts, as we've read it before, and I'm sure we are familiar with it, it presents many examples of Paul and how he chooses to live and how he accommodates himself to um, those Jews. You know, he would, um, before he went off into missions, he met Timothy, and Timothy's father was a Jew. So what he done with, what he done with Timothy, he got Timothy circumcised, which was like a Jewish command given to Jews at the time. And he got Timothy circumcised so that whenever, when he went to missions and engaged with the Jewish people, there wouldn't be nothing that, they, that would throw them off course to listening to him. He would go to the Jewish, um, on, a, on a Jewish Sabbath, he would go to the synagogue and he would use that opportunity to teach the people about the gospel. He would call the Jews his brothers. He would, when he speaks about the gospel, when he preaches to the, um, to the Jews about the gospel, he would always start with the Old Testament so that they can see and understand how Christ has come, how Christ is the one and true Lord and Savior who would come and save many. So let's look at um, 21. Verse 21. To those not having a law, I became like one not having a law. Though I'm not free from God's law, but under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. Very similar to what Paul does is that whenever he talks about the gospel, or he talks about um, the gospel going forth and people need to be saved by the gospel, he will always say, 
to the Jew first, or you'll say to Jews and to the Greeks, or the Jews or Gentiles, meaning every single person. And so that's what he's doing here. It's in line with what he said before, to win everyone. And he mentions the Jews, and he's also mentioned the Greeks, Gentiles. And how do you know that? Well, he's speaking of those that are outside of Judaism. He's speaking of those who are completely outside of the, the Jewish law that they had at that time, the Old Testament laws. And those are people are like me and you, essentially, or what you would call Gentiles. Especially now, obviously, we're saved or Christians. And exactly like our previous, previous verse, he wants to accommodate himself to them. He wants to um, totally make himself familiar with their culture, their language, their foods, their festivals, their customs. Same thing he wants to do with the Jewish people. Now, one thing we may want to notice is that what does he mean in those brackets when he says, though I'm not free from God's law, but under Christ's law? What does he mean? It kind of may, it may slightly throw us off course, but I'll quickly go through that so we understand. What Paul is saying is that he's speaking of, um, he, can't, he cannot be speaking of God's, um, he, cannot, he cannot be speaking of the Jewish law. He just spoke, he just said that briefly. He just said, I am not under the Jewish law. So he's not speaking of the observances and commandments given to the Jews that he's under. So what law is he speaking of? He's speaking of the moral law of God. He's saying, I'm not free from the moral law of God. And that's true. No one is free from the moral law of God. The moral law of God can be summed up partially by the commandments of God, the Ten Commandments, which I'm sure we're all familiar with. And it pricks us. It shows us our sin in our hearts. And with the law, we see our sin. And therefore, no one would be without the law. So he's not free from the moral law. But ultimately, he's free in Christ. He is in Christ, which he says. And if we were to think about the law of Christ, as he says here, how do we understand that? Well, in Matthew chapter 2, when um, the Pharisees asked Jesus, how do we fulfill the law? Jesus says, oh, you love man and you love God. Galatians uh, 6.2 says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. So it's saying that he's under, not under the, the Jewish law, not free from the moral law, but he's under Christ. But in Christ, which is to love man and love God, he's able to love others and accommodate himself to others for the gospel. You see, the, the love of Christ, the law of Christ, which he's under, governs him, allows him to do this for the glory of Christ. But how do we think about examples? How do we, like, get this practically in our mind, how do we think, how do we do this practically speaking? Because you're, you're speaking of the Corinthians who were there years and years ago, but how do we apply it to our modern day? I want to take you through a few examples. Think of Hudson Taylor. He was the founder of the China Inland Missions. He was a missionary who really, truly was a good example of who accommodated himself. He went to China to reach souls for the gospel. And what he did is that he would dress in the same exact dress they dressed in. He would shave his head. He, would, um, he ate the same exact food as his neighbors. 
He lived in the same houses as his neighbors. He didn't live in a, a different um, house that suited his needs or that fit his culture back here in this country. No, he chose the same exact house as they chose um, or people would have been living in China. And he spoke exactly the same language. In other words, he lost his nationality that he had in this country and gave himself up for a new nationality in a different country for the sake of the gospel. And through that faithfulness to the gospel, for the glory of God, when we look at China now, Christianity is growing in China. Many more missionaries came and went to China. Many people have been saved and the power of the gospel was made known in that country. In my old church, um, we had a Muslim community surrounding us. So we're quite a small church. And we had one event um, which we wanted to be able to evangelize those that are local to us. And so what we did, we, I can't remember the name of the event. I should have asked someone before I came up here. But it was an event where we essentially um, accommodated ourselves so well to the Muslim traditions and cultures. What we did, we had the same exact food as them. We, um, had this, we had like these Asian sort of drinks and we um, wore kind of clothes which wouldn't um, essentially make those who within the community or those Muslims want to um, despise us in any way. We want them to feel welcome and feel they can come inside um, the church. And so we did that and we preached in a way that would help them understand um, about Jesus Christ. We pointed to Jesus Christ in a way that wouldn't be offensive so much but that didn't deny the gospel truths. Another example is a Christian girl, a woman I know, and um, she was contemplating whether she goes to this wedding of hers. One of her friends was going to her wed- had a wedding, but it wasn't a Christian wedding. Um, it wasn't an atheistic wedding. It was, uh, I think, a Muslim wedding. And part of going to this wedding is that you had to wear um, a headscarf and stuff like that. Now, headscarves may symbolize something in the Muslim religion, but she chose to wear a headscarf so that she can go to this wedding and simply worship, t- um, simply take joy in two people coming together. And by her wearing a headscarf, by her accommodating herself in such a small way and then going forward and being able to go and join these other people celebrating the marriage of peop- uh, two people coming together, she was able to demonstrate her Christian character. And that must have been a witness. Or take, for example, lastly, Elizabeth Elliot, who was the widow of, amongst other widows, of um, these young uh, missionaries, these young men in Ecuador. This uh, Elizabeth, uh, Elizabeth Elliot, her and other women, and, and the young men, they went to um, Ecuador. Um, essentially, the men would try to reach this, these, um, this tribe, and what essentially happened is this tribe ended up killing them, all the men that were there. And so rather than Elizabeth Elliot choosing to go back home and call it quits, she decided to continue. She had one of the Ecuadorian tribes and she spoke to them um, and she would learn from her. Just this young Ecuadorian lady that's from the tribe, she would learn from her for years and years. And then through that, she was able to go back into the tribe and preach the gospel. Many people were saved. Even a man that killed her husband. And so we have extraordinary examples and ordinary examples. But at the same time, we see that 
it is the Christian norm to accommodate yourself to others. Again, not to please others, but to please God. But to please them in a way that allows us to share the gospel with them and gain a familiarity. It's very hard to say that word. To gain a bit of familiarity with them. So, if we move on to verse 22, it says, To the weak I became weak, to win the weak I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save them. You might think to yourself, what is he talking about, the weak? He just talked about the Jews, he just talked about the, the Gentiles, and so he must be talking about everyone, but who are the weak in this verse? Well, remember a few weeks back, we looked at the weak, and these were people in the church who were Christian, but they may have been Christians with a, a, a sense of lack of knowledge, and um, pretty much young in their faith, who were struggling over idol food. And Paul told the much more stronger or uh, more puffed up Christians who knew more that if you eat idol food, you potentially may destroy their conscience. And in doing that, you may destroy their faith. But these are people who Christ has died for. This is my brother, as Paul says. So they were Christians. And so Paul was saying that he, he tried, he warned them, make sure how you take care of your brothers and sisters within a church who are weak, who are weaker in faith, who are there but almost quite not there. They're, they're, they're in Christ, but they are sensitive and they lack knowledge. So to love them, but be careful not to damage their faith because it would be a sin to Christ. So Paul is not only concerned with um, warning them that they take care of those, but he's also concerned with making sure that he wins them. Now, again, they're, they're Christians. He calls them brothers. They're Christians. But at the same time, he wants to make sure these people go wise in their faith, in, in, the, in, in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Just a brief example. I remember um, a few weeks back, I had a girl get in touch. Um, girl, excuse me, a, a friend of mine get in touch with me. And she called me saying that I've taken a vaccine, but um, someone I know is telling me that it's the mark of the beast. And I don't want to go into either of those things. So, so here's my main point. Before she became a Christian, she, was, um, she would always uh, hear about these end-time stories. And so it would be a bit of a fright to her, a bit of a scare to her. And so when you just turn Christian and you hear someone say to you who's also um, thinking about the end times, all these things, but more so mystical about it, um, tell you that you've, ta- you've taken the vaccine, great, you've taken the mark of the beast, therefore you're not saved no more. How do you think she would feel? Would that not have a chance of destroying her faith in Christ and destroying her confidence? And so I had to accommodate myself to her. I had to accommodate myself to her by coming down to her level, speaking to her in a way that would not supposedly short emphasis on everything. So I need to show that truth to her, but in a way that will strengthen her confidence in Christ and teach her in a way that she can interpret the Bible so she knows that when she takes the vaccine, she's not taking the mark of the beast, essentially. But imagine if we were sitting around in a table and we were speaking loosely about such a thing we, we, in, in Revelations, the mark of the beast, and we were talking about that, and there was someone at the table who was um, like, like, just like her. Imagine... And we were talking about that and we didn't know. Imagine how she would feel if she went home regarding her faith. And so we always have to be careful how we speak and what we do 
in the presence of our brothers and sisters. And so Paul summarizes um, well in 1 Corinthians um, 10, 32 to 11 to 1. He says, do not cause anyone to stumble over Jews, Greeks, or the church of God, even as I try to please everyone in every way. I'm not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. There it is summed up. You have Paul, so you can comment yourself to those outside of the church who don't know Christ, and you have Paul accommodate himself to those inside of the church so that they may wise up in Christ. This is his goal as an apostle. And our instruction, though we're not apostles, is to follow Paul's same example within the capacity that we have in our lives that God has given us. And verse 23 says that he does this all for the gospel. It's out of pure motives for the gospel, and he doesn't say that he may share in the blessings, but he may share with everyone else the joys of coming to Christ, the joy of knowing Christ. So let's head on to our next lesson, verses 24 to 27. And our lesson is gospel-minded people engage in serious self-discipline for the heavenly prize. Gospel-minded people engage in serious self-discipline for the heavenly prize. Paul was given an example here of a sort of Olympics that was happening in Corinth. He uses purpose to demonstrate the single-minded focus and the self-discipline required, especially for himself as an apostle. But again, as we mentioned before, Paul's doing this to give instruction, to give an example to the Christians how they should act if they want to live as those who honor the gospel. Let's look at verse 20 to 25. Paul opens up with a rhetorical question. In short, in, in, in sports, there's only one, um, one person who wins. He or she who wins is the one that's very intentional. They have a single and narrow focus. They are determined. You know, you picture a sprinter, and they will have lanes when they're sprinting. And their job, the only job, when that gun goes off, is to, it's literally to hit that, that finish line. That's the only job. Unless you're Usain Bolt and you, you're fast and you can look behind you. But apart from if you're not, you're, his only job is to, reach that, is to reach that mark, to finish that race. And that's how we ought to live in a Christian sense. You see, knowing that our prize is eternal, one which lasts forever, Paul wants us to imagine the glory that an athlete may gain for strict training for the purpose of a medal, which ultimately will fade, it will rust, it will be found by someone else and probably go on those, those shows where they said, my great, 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 great granddad won this Olympics and so forth and it will go into another person. It will eventually fade. It does nothing. He wants us to imagine, imagine the prize and times that by a million times over for the prize that we will receive when we see Christ for the work we've done here. So I was asking you, what is your prize? What is your, what is your prize? That way your prize is or your treasure is will show also where your heart is. So, in terms of, are you focused on this world? Are you focused here and then now? Or are you, are you focused on eternity? Is your eyes gazed 
up to heaven. Don't show me this by what you can, don't show me this by your words. Show me by your actions, your thoughts, and your hearts. If I was to look at your life, how can I tell if you're gazing here for a prize which essentially will, will not last, or if you're looking up to gain a prize which comes from Christ, which is Christ himself ultimately? You see, God has given us talents and he's given us um, a sense of capacity. He's given us um, our own, our own um, ministries, whether it's in here in church or at, at, at work. We all have ministries. And he wants us to use them well for the gospel. He wants us to self-discipline ourselves that we can follow this gospel suit for the sake of, of others. And I ask yourself, where is our prize in all of these? And in relation to all these, where is our prize? Because if we're focused on eternity, it will determine how we live in, in, these, in these areas. Look at me, 26, 27. Paul decides to know the strong effort we ought to put into self-discipline and self-control. That our lifestyles and our witness to others matches the gospel we speak. Does our witness, what we speak to others, what we preach to others match our lifestyles because that's a big thing if it's not matching our lifestyles that's not a good thing and it can be quite hypocritical so what does he say he says what he does therefore is that he makes himself a slave he uses the same word again a slave he makes himself a slave he beats his body up again not like medieval sacrificially beating his body up but he beats his body up in the sense that he controls his body, self-control and discipline himself making his body a tool to be a slave so that he wouldn't result in hypocrisy if I said it right but you know what I mean because he doesn't want to have, he doesn't want to deny the gospel in the way he lives especially when he preaches it and we ought to be people who are hold that conviction, a people of integrity who preach it and at the same time live it. So as I finish off here, I just want to say one thing. At first I struggled with the second part of this. I thought to myself, how do you really, what, what am I learning here? How can I speak it to you, all of you? But especially in our times now when some of us are weary, some of us are tired and we're focused on, okay, when we, where can we get our next rest? When will, um, you know, things open up again and what am I going to do in summer and stuff like that. Let's keep our eyes focused on eternity. Keep our eyes focused on Christ. You see, knowing him for eternity, in his presence, in perfect communion with him, is the true price. And that's a price earned by Christ. It's not earned by us, it's earned by Christ. And that is the true price. That is the true joy that we shall when we meditate and gaze upon heaven. That Christ has saved me, he's made me his, and now by his strength, I'm going to walk, I'm going to march onto Zion, I'm going to march onto my heavenly destination that Christ has got for me. And that is true joy, and that is true food and water that sustains me. You see, we may think, of, we may look at this, and we may say, okay, I now have to be a gospel-minded person. I now have to think to myself that I need to accommodate myself to certain people 
but it's a bit of a challenge. It's a bit of difficulty. It's going to require discipline and self-effort. And I'm a bit weary. I'm a bit tired, especially with what's going on. But let me tell you, what are you looking at? If you're looking to Christ, he will sustain you. If you're looking to him, he will give you joy and give you spiritual energy to accomplish what we see here, to glorify him. So therefore, lift your heads up and look to Christ and you'll be motivated. Don't look to the rest that you're going to receive. Don't look to the holidays you're going to have. Look to do something, but they're good. But ultimately, look to Christ and he will sustain you. Therefore, let's be cautious to keep self-control and disciplined in the way we should be walking in accommodating ourselves to others for the gospel and also that we may live lives that hold integrity according to the gospel so we can truly um, live this life that God has given us. So in light of this, let's consider how you may confess um, where you've been prideful and haven't decided to accommodate ourselves to others. We haven't chosen to love us. We haven't chosen to fulfill the law of Christ, which is to love man, love God. And let's seek opportunities where we can have this attitude with others who don't know the gospel and those who do know the gospel within a church but are weak in the faith. So let's give us a minute. Let's go before God in prayer. And if Paul will come up in like two minutes to come and give us our prayer. Father, please help us to be gospel-minded people. Would you make us like Christ to be imitators um, of him and I think that we can see the example that Paul sets, us, sets up for us. I pray, Lord, um, in whatever capacity that we are in, um, whatever ministries that we're in, whether it's in church or whether it's in our jobs, with families, and with those who do not, our friends and families who do not know Christ, please help us to be uh, people who can find ways to accommodate ourselves to them. And I pray we'll be unified in striving um, to to come yourself to people in the community and be those who um, love Christ. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.